right, you may be seated. That's one of my favorite songs. I haven't been up here in a while, and I told uh, Wesley I needed something very upbeat so I can get up there upbeat. So I'm up here upbeat, okay? All right, well, let me go ahead and get this out of the way. Congratulations to you NC State fans. For... You, you don't do that when I mention Jesus. I mean, you, you need to get your priorities straight when it comes to this. Okay. Today, we're going to be looking at the encounter that happened at the southern steps of the Temple Mount. And I think this morning, as we start this uh, sermon, uh, I want to really point out a, a neat story that surrounds this area. And you'll see the stairs leading up. This is the, uh, the southern stairs to the Temple Mount. And so the Temple Mount is, of course, the place built up there. But these stairs are very important when it comes to Jesus' teaching. And I'll give you more on that in just a moment. But, but the, this is the place where many people or many scholars believe that Jesus taught when he was there in Jerusalem. And the reason they think that is because Jesus probably was not allowed access with the crowds that would follow him actually on the Temple Mount. So many scholars believe that his teaching probably happened here. And, and I've been there, and you can see how many people can sit on these stairs. And so he's teaching there. Antonio's Fortress, some of you may not know that, but was above the temple, more northern uh, than the temple itself. And, and there at Antonio's Fortress, the Roman guard was there overseeing the affairs of the Temple Mount. Because they knew if there was going to be a revolution, if there's going to be some kind of uh, something to overthrow Rome or whatever kind of activities, it would probably happen in that area because of what it represented. And so they were there looking onto the temple. They would have probably never allowed a crowd that followed Jesus up on the mount. So again, most people believe this is where the teachings took place. It was there that I came across one of the coolest stories I think I've ever heard. It was there that back in 2010 when I, I was able to go to Israel myself, and we were there on these steps. And the tour guide who was with us, some of you have told this story, I think, on Wednesday night, but the tour guide who was with us had the privilege to have Neil Armstrong in one of his groups as he, as he took them around Israel. And, of course, we know Neil Armstrong is the first man to walk on the moon. And so the tour guide was talking about all, the thing, all that represented there, what the steps were, what this is where Jesus probably would have taught, this is where the people sat. And as they rose to leave, the tour guide looked back and Neil Armstrong was still sitting on these steps and tears coming down his face. And so he goes to Neil Armstrong and he says, sir, are you okay? He said, yeah. He said, but you know something? I'm sitting here, and it just dawned on me. I had rather be sitting here where my Savior taught than standing on the moon. Man, you talk about something that's inspiring. That's inspiring. And, and, and so when you look at this story, you see that there's a, a story that is, that is about to happen that Jesus is going to become involved with. There's going to be an encounter, and this is where shame will come on display. So look at the introduction on your outline. It is amazing to think that the transformation God desires for you can replace your shame and guilt with his grace and forgiveness. But it only occurs... When you encounter him. 
So many times when uh, on the counseling arena of the job that I have, and so many times we have all these people who may come, and there's many who will come, and, and really when you strip down what they're really dealing with, you know where most of them are? They're still living under a cloud of shame and guilt. Even though they know Jesus is their Lord and Savior, even though all that's been set up and they, they know for certain they have that relationship, that cloud still overhangs them. Let me give you the definition of shame. It's right there on your outline. It's a painful emotion caused by guilt. It's a condition of humiliating disgrace. At its worst, it can manifest itself in self-hatred. It can be very destructive. What are some of the results of shame? Well, it creates a works-based acceptance before God. For those who are living under a shame-based identity, there's many people out there who, who have a hard time receiving that God would grant a gift that's found in Jesus Christ for the gift forgiveness of sin, that they don't have to carry their shame and guilt any longer, and, and they're there, but yet, for some reason, they feel like they still have to work for it to gain God's approval. And many of them are really struggling in this area. The results of shame, it creates a low self-esteem. It creates barriers to intimacy, creates the victim personality, and lastly, creates hopelessness. And that's where many people find themselves. Now, now let me just say this. There's some shame that is good. Their shame sometimes is good because what shame can do is cause you to reach out beyond yourself to the one who can help you with your shame. When we came to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that was part of what he was bringing us out of, the shame and the guilt. But to get us to that point to identify Jesus as our Savior, guess what? That shame and that guilt was there probably being used to motivate us to that point. But the enemy also knows how to use shame and guilt. He's very good at it, matter of fact. How many of you know that? He, he, he's there constructing many times that cloud of, that, that hangs over us. And he wants us to forget that our salvation rests in the fact that our shame and our guilt has been forgiven. So how does God replace our shame with forgiveness. Look at this verse here on the screen. It's one of the greatest verses in all the Bible. God was in Christ. He was in Jesus, reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses, our sins, against us. That, that, that means there's a separation. When Christ, when we encounter Jesus as it relates to our salvation, guess what? That encounter means that there's no more guilt and no more shame. And then it says this. He made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now that is loaded when you really look at this verse. Because when it says that we might become, it's the same language that God creates something out of nothing. And it's really the idea that we become something completely different when we come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And we walk in his grace and 
his forgiveness. And so therefore, our identity moves from shame and guilt and sin to the fact that our identity now is where? It's in Christ and what he has done on our behalf. Why did he do that? What is he allowing us to become? The righteousness of God. Think about that. The righteousness. It, it, it literally means uh, the one God made us righteous or right before, before God himself. And so that's the whole idea of what God has done on our behalf through Jesus. To take us from our shame and our guilt identity to the identity that's now found in Jesus Christ. And y'all, if we can ever get our mind around that and get our heart around that, it will change our lives. It will change our lives. I know there's many people, and I think this was not mine because I was discipled, but there's many people who come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and they're never discipled. And they've received salvation, but they never dream that some of the weight that they're carrying can be lifted because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so I'm here today to tell you what Jesus has done on, on your behalf is enough to make you complete in him. It's enough. It's not workspace. So look at John chapter 8. This morning, I want us to look at a story of how Jesus filled a heart of shame with grace and mercy. What we're about to read is what I said earlier. We're about to see shame on display. Shame on display. And so the first thing I want you to see is the encounter between an adulteress and her accusers. Now, to set up the story, John does it for us. Look at verse 2 of John chapter 8. Now, early in the morning, Jesus came again into the temple. Now, now, when it says into the temple, that may be misleading because Jesus would, would never have been able to take a whole crowd, like we're getting ready to read, into the temple. It means he went in the direction of the temple. And we believe he came to these stairs because of what takes place in the next verse. And it says this, early in the morning he came towards the temple or directional to the temple to, and to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. And so the first thing we see here is the temple, okay? The temple. Now, this is a model of the temple. There's the temple mount that goes up there. These are the southern steps that go in, the gold part there, okay? So that's where he probably did the teaching we're talking about. You see the temple there? Well, just above the temple is where Antonio's fortress is. That was the Roman presence in that area. And so you have all that sitting right there. And this right there, those steps, is probably where this scene takes place. Now think about what's going on. It seemed to be a typical early morning. And Jesus is there prepared to teach the people. And the next thing we see is not only the temple, but the teacher himself. And so they're there, and the, the people gather around to hear what he has to say. And he begins to teach, and they listen intently when all of a sudden there's a commotion that comes from the side of the, the stairs there and made this way to where Jesus was. Do you see the scene? Jesus is there teaching the people, kind of like up there where the stairs are. He's talking to them. Commotion comes out of nowhere. 
What do we have? Well, we have what's intended to be the trap. The trap. The Pharisees and the scribes interrupt him. Look at John chapter 8, verse 3. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. Even when we read this, even in our modern day ideas, we look at this and we're saying, how does that happen? How does that happen? Many scholars would say that the scribes were the lawyers who defended the law of Moses and also a booklet that the Jews used called the Mishnah. And so the scribes would literally be like the attorneys who would make sure that the law of Moses is carried out the way it needs to be carried out and also the, the other book that they've written, which was the Mishnah. Now, they were very self-righteous people. They were people who appeared to have it all together, and they had the right, therefore, to judge others. And we see this right here in the Scripture. They were bound in tradition of a merciless religion. They were literally, if you keep reading the text of John and all the other Gospels, they were literally haters of Jesus, and they wanted him removed from the scene. That was their only goal. So here in John chapter 8, they've tried many things, but right now they're trying to trap Jesus. Okay, they're trying to trap him. The bait is this woman that we're about to read. And so therefore we see, we're, we're introduced to the sinner. Again, the scene is filled with self-righteous intruders, and all of a sudden this woman comes in, and we see her there, and that woman is the shame in all the story. In John chapter 8, verse 3, then the scribes brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, then they set her in the midst. Those who are listening to Jesus teach are all gathered there. The people who are considered the righteous of that day. By the way, many people respected the Pharisees and the scribes. Some of those same people sitting in those, on those steps that day, they saw what these men were doing, and they threw this woman down before the feet of Jesus. Think about it. Here's a picture of what it could be, have been like. And, and I'm telling you, it, it, it's really amazing when you see this. Many of you have always known the story, but have you ever put yourself in place of where she, where she must have been and what must have been going on in her own heart? Some of you are sitting here saying, well, I would never be an adulterer, so therefore, no, I mean, think about it. She represents, you know who she represents before Jesus? She represents us. She is a representation of us. Why? Because we're all considered sinners. And she's just one of us. And there she is in front of Jesus. Her arms were probably bruised from their struggle. Her hair pulled and disheveled. Her breathing is probably that of someone who was panicked. She's there clutching onto any of the clothing she could find. It's possibly she was going out of the house as they took her. And then we come to the story. John chapter 8, verse 4. They said to Jesus, the scribes did, Pharisees, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. In verse 4, the word for caught literally means to seize or to overcome. It means that they literally, they're claiming they literally caught her in the act. 
in the act. Now, let me ask you a simple question. What's missing from the story if someone's committing adultery? The man, right? Where's the man? A lot of you ladies are sitting there saying, where's the man? And well, he's not there. And so no doubt Jesus at that moment must have thought, how could this have really taken place if it wasn't a trap? And by the way, where is the man? What's wrong with the story? Where was her partner? The next verses indicate what was really going on. There we find the scripture. The scripture. John chapter 8 verse 5. Here's these scribes, the Pharisees. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But Jesus, what do you say about it? What do you say about it? How many of you can already see Jesus is in a very difficult situation? He's in a dilemma. We see it as a dilemma. Do you think Jesus is looking at it that way? No, he, he's not panicked. He's not, oh my goodness, what am I going to say? What's going to, what am I going to do? He just becomes more like Jesus in the scene. And so therefore, what do we read? It says in verse 6, This they said, testing him that they may have something of which to accuse him. That was really the motive of what was happening here. The traditions of Judaism found in this book called the Mishnah stated that the man caught in adultery was to be hanged in a public execution. The woman would be stoned. In the book of Leviticus, Moses wrote that if the sin was committed in a city, both partners were to be publicly stoned to death. And again, Jesus appears to be in a dilemma. Now, here's what was at stake. If Jesus would have said that the woman ought to be stoned, two things would have followed. First of all, Jesus would lose the name that he had gained with love and respect from those who were sinners. Did you notice that in the Bible, sinners were drawn to Jesus? Who was repulsed by Jesus? The religious. But sinners were drawn to him. We see it all through the scriptures. They were drawn, and what would that look like if Jesus says she needs to be stoned? Secondly, Jesus, if he said she needed to be stoned, would have come into a collision with the Roman law. Jews had no power to carry out the death sentence on anyone. So that would have been a problem also. Either way, guess what? The scribes and the Pharisees felt like, we got them. We got them. And that must have been how they felt. The woman was the bait to trap Jesus. If Jesus said that she should be pardoned, some could even say that he was teaching men to break the law of Moses. And that's not what he was there to do. That's not what he was up to. But I want you to look at what he did. And this is what makes him Jesus. We see an advocate and his approach. Instead of answering the accusers, look at verse 6 again, the second part. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. How many of you are already sitting there saying, Jesus is so cool? He is. I mean, he just kneels down. He pretends like he's not even listening to him, and he begins to write something on the ground. This is the only incident that we find in Scripture where Jesus is writing anything. It's kind of neat, isn't it, when you think about it? 
But we're about to find on your outline what's called the truth. The truth is about to be revealed. What did we think the truth was? Well, the scribes and the Pharisees thought that the truth was found in the fact this woman was caught into adultery. And what needed to be done about her would reveal the truth of what they were looking for. But guess what? That's not what happens. John chapter 8, verse 7. So when they continued asking him, now think about the scene here. Jesus, you're going to answer us? Come on, Jesus. You can do better than that. What are you doing, by the way? (laughs) That's what it means. They continued asking him. He raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. He basically said, okay, you've caught her, you saw her, you brought her here to me. If you're without sin, go ahead and start the process. But why did they not? Verse 8, he stooped down again, wrote on the ground, Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one. Verse 9, my translation says those who heard it. What it really meant was those who saw it and it was there. It was obvious. It was obvious. Okay, that's really the intention of what that phrase means. It was obvious. So what he was writing was obvious to them. Okay, they saw it. It was right there. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. You say, what was on the ground? What was he writing? Most people believe he was writing their own sins on the ground because of the context. And also, by the way, the Greek says in just a moment what what it actually says. And so Jesus is there. And, and could it be, now, I, again, I'm, I'm using my imagination, but if the Bible says they heard it, which it wasn't vocal. It just means it was very obvious what was right there in front of them. They were convicted by it. It's cool when self-righteous people are convicted. Do you know that? That's, some, that's major work going on. And all of a sudden, they're looking there. Can you imagine Jesus possibly doesn't say he did this, but you got to understand there was a strong connection to what was on the ground. You can't miss that. And he looks down, and maybe he points at one and looks at the one who committed it. I don't know. That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? How do I know that it was obvious that it went where it needed to go? Because it was right there, and they were convicted by it, and they saw it, and it was very obvious what was happening. They, listen, Jesus put them in their own trap in their own trap that they created. And so they went out one by one, oldest to the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in their midst. Now, John possibly, an eyewitness to this, when writing about this event, he writes his words very carefully. In the Greek, which some of you don't care anything about, but I think it's pretty cool, okay? It writes kata grapho. Grapho means to write. We know that. Kata, kata means against. So literally, the text itself, John chose words where it says he was writing against them. A lot of people are like, we really don't know what he was writing. I think it was pretty obvious what he was writing. He was writing against them. 
this could, this could imply that Jesus wrote against the accusers. Another translation of the Bible states it this way. Jesus was writing to declare their sins. Of course, that's more of an interpretation. But Jesus sees in their very hearts, and that moving finger writes, idolater, liar, drunkard, murderer, adulterer, all of them right there on display. You see, they thought they could put shame on display with this woman. But who was really on display at this moment? They were. Their shame. Isn't it amazing? Then it appears the thud of stone after stone falls to the ground. Think about the tables are turned. Those who brought shame left with shame. And Jesus, all along, knew exactly what to do in this situation. How many of you, when you read stories like this, this just makes you feel even more better about Jesus? You're like, yeah. Until it speaks to us that way, right? <laughs> then it becomes painful when we're convicted. But these stories, it really is. So the accusers, those who brought condemnation, look at the story. They're gone. But is the shame of the woman still on display? It really is, isn't it? Her shame has not been dealt with. I want to ask you a simple question this morning. But when you come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, do you know what's really being presented? You say, well, my sin. It's not just your sin. Your shame and your guilt all that, all that is what is displayed as you come to understand the grace that God has for you. So it's not just our sin. It's also our guilt. It's also our shame. And so when Jesus took our sin on, on the cross, and that's what that verse was saying a while ago when we read it, Jesus took on our sin. What else did he take on? The Bible's very clear. Our guilt and our shame. But guess what? For this woman and for some of you sitting here today, your shame has never really been taken care of. And it's right there and Jesus is face to face with this woman. And her shame, as we said before, is on display. There can't be, there's probably not a bigger contrast in Scripture than what is seen right there. And keep in mind, all these people are seeing what's taking place. But think about what they're looking at. They're seeing a sinner in the presence of a sinless son of God. Can you think of a greater contrast than that? You know what they're seeing? They're seeing an adulteress in the Messiah. They're seeing one, one who deserved death with the one who brings life. There's not a bigger contrast in Scripture than what you find right here. And yet this, but I want you to understand, that just as might as well have been each of us there that day. Our sin is great. Did you know that? Your sin is great. It cost God the Father everything when he, when, when he put his son there on display with your sin, your shame, your guilt. So when you get up there and you say, well, I didn't do what she did, you may have done worse. When you say, I didn't, no, it's not a comparison. The one who was sinless is standing there. So anyone else who would have been there in the place of this woman would have been on equal footing with this woman. Your shame on display. Think about that. 
But notice the response of Jesus, the terms of releasing shame. First of all, Jesus faced her. He, 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 didn't, he didn't, after the big scene, I mean, the grand finale, I don't know about you, was in some ways is when they start dropping the stones and walk off. I mean, some people could say, well, that's the grand finale. The grand finale hasn't happened yet. The grand finale is getting ready to happen. But, but here's, here's what we understand. Jesus could have said, all right, you're free to go. But he didn't, did he? He faced her. In John chapter 8, look at verse 10. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Accusers of yours. Has no one condemned you? Where, where's all the big talk? Your shame was here on display. But you know what? They left. Your accusers left with their own shame. And yet here you are. And he could have easily said, but you're still in your shame. He could have easily said that. But then what do we see? Jesus not only faced her, secondly, Jesus forgave her. Look at verse 11. She said, no one, Lord. Those accusers, all those who, who, who rattled my world this morning, who shook me up, who brought me to this point, they're not around. It's just, we're just here. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Now, who is rightfully the one who could condemn her? Jesus. You say, how, how could he rightfully be the one that could condemn her? He was sinless. He was sinless. He could, he could have, out of everybody in the story, including the people sitting up in the stands, he's the only one who's ever walked the face of the earth who could have rightfully condemned her. Yet what? He did not. So if he didn't condemn her, what must he have done? The same thing he's done for us if we know Jesus is our Lord and Savior. He forgave her. He forgave her. He didn't only forgive her. Think about what's going on here. He didn't only forgive her. He took the sin upon himself like he did on the cross. The, the wrath of that sin, all sins got to be punished. So therefore, my sin went on Jesus, according to Scripture. Her sin went to Jesus. And that wrath was poured upon that sin that should have been fulfilled. That wrath should have been fulfilled in us. He took it on himself on our behalf. And that's the reason. That is the grand finale of the story. Is that right there? Now, here's something else that seems to come here. Next, Jesus freed her. In verse 12, we have one of the seven I am passages in Scripture. In verse 12, then Jesus spoke to them again. Now, to them, who's he talking to? He's talking to the people he's been teaching. Now, how many of you say this is a pretty good object lesson? Jesus didn't create it, but he sure used it well. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, you've got a beautiful object lesson here. And then Jesus says this. He spoke to them again, the teacher with the student, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I want you, I want you to think about in the story, who, was the, who were the ones walking in darkness? The woman was walking in darkness. She, she was what they said. But who else? 
on that day, the religious evidently were the ones walking in darkness. You know why? Because they, they left. They, they, they saw their sin. They saw their shame. And they left. If they really meant business about walking into the light, if they really meant business about who Jesus was, they would have stayed. They would have submitted themselves to what this woman is submitting herself to. But they didn't, did they? They left. Think about it. Woman, you came to me in darkness, but the, today you're going to leave in the light. In the light. But guess who came in darkness and who left in darkness? The religious people. The religious the scribes, the Pharisees. And so all of a sudden we see in this. So what does it mean to be freed from darkness to light? Someone sent me a devotional this week. And uh, there was, this was in there, but it wasn't talking about from darkness to light. But this is still the same thing. How do you go from living in darkness to light? Here's what it looks like. I receive your righteousness and release my sinfulness. I receive your holiness or your wholeness and release my brokenness. I want you to think about that. This is a beautiful picture of what could have been going on in this woman. I receive your fullness and you release my emptiness. What's happening when people sin? What's happening when they're in a lifestyle of sin? They're looking to feel something that's missing. Something that's missing in their life. He goes on. What does it mean to move from darkness to light? I receive your peace and release my anxiety. I receive your joy release my despair. I receive your healing and release my sickness. I, release your, I receive your forgiveness and release my shame. My shame. Before I get to the conclusion, I want to share this with you. There's so many of us. I'm convinced I was eight years old when I gave my life to Jesus. I remember everything about it. It's not really just what I remember. I just remember I was not the same eight-year-old. I really wasn't. I had a hunger for God's word. I had a hunger to serve in the church. I had a hunger for the things of God, even as a young eight-year-old. But then there came those times in my life. How many of you have had those? But there were times in my life when, when I walked away from everything that I had in Jesus. And, and it wasn't that Jesus checked out on me. I checked out on Jesus. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I kind of kind of going my own way, wanting my desires, wanting this, wanting that. And, and so the enemy made something very attractive to me. And all of a sudden, I, I fell and I participated in that sin. And you know what? The enemy didn't come alongside of me and say, it's okay, we'll get through this together. Does the enemy ever do that? No, he turns on you at that point. He'll be your best friend down the path of temptation. He'll be your best friend right where the sin is happening. But boy, once you partake, he leaves you with it. With the guilt and the shame. I lived in that for years of my life. Because you know why I think I, I did? I think it was so real to me. My shame is because I knew what it was like to walk in the light. I knew what it was like. And all of a sudden, I participated in this. And all of a sudden, the shame just came onto my life. I wasn't the same follower of Jesus that I once was. Until I came back to him through a means of repentance. Through a means of saying, Jesus, 
you, this has proven to me even more that you are who you say you are and you're doing what you say you'll do. You'll take my guilt and my shame. Look at the conclusion. Shame destroys your capacity for an abundant life. There's some of you sitting here today and you know, you know you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You know that. You've seen the proofs of it. But there's also this, this, this weight that overcomes you. Next, when shame, lie, when shame lies at the core of your identity, it may be so persuasive that you cannot put your finger on it. You know, here's what you think. You may have never identified it by name, even though it's powerfully present. Hence, shame can manifest itself as a deep-seated feeling that something is fundamentally wrong. How many of you can identify with that? You know it's there. You feel it. You see it. Although the enemy wants to convince you that you will always be a prisoner of your failures and your past experiences, God's grace can free you from the shame of your past and give you a new life in him. I've often, as I said, when I was writing this sermon this week, and I studied it years ago, this same scene, I've always tried to put my place in the place of that woman that day. Can you imagine what it was like when Jesus possibly reached his hand out and helped her to her feet? What that must have been like. What she was poured into and the way that it all played out and the way that she left. Man, that's something powerful when you think about it. But you know something? You came in here today, possibly with shame, but maybe your shame wasn't on display. But let me tell you this about shame. Shame, while it may not be on public display, shame is shame. And shame is your worst enemy when it comes to living the life that God desires you to live. And it may not be a public display, but it's still real enough to keep you from what he desires for you. He desires so much more for you. Secondly, maybe you're someone here today, you've never given your life to Jesus. Guess what? Your shame, your shame is is intended to motivate you towards what he offers. Forgiveness, grace, mercy. If you've never given him your life, You have the greatest need in this room that you can come in with your shame and leave a new person in Christ. That's what God's word offers. I want to invite you at this time. Would you stand to your feet, please? Father, we come to you right now. and Lord, I just pray for each of us here in this room. We're all carrying something. There's always something there that we're, we're, we're in the midst of. For some of us, we're in the storms of life, and for some of us, we're coming out of it. For some of us, we're going into it. And sometimes the storms can shake us to our core. Sometimes the storms of life can be a reminder of what we once felt as it relates to shame. Father, I pray for the Christian that's here. I pray for that one that knows you as their Lord and Savior. There was a time in their life where they repented of their sins and turned to you by faith. Father, I pray for that one that's here today, where I was for so many years, not living in the full potential or capacity of the life you called me to because I was still operating with a shame-based identity.
couldn't forgive myself. Didn't really know if you really had forgiven me. But your word says that you do. And we saw a perfect story here today of how that is true. Father, I pray for the one that's never given their life to you, Father. They've never turned from their sin and turned to you and by faith walk with you and a whole new revelation of life. Father, I pray for them today that you would have your way in their life. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, our prayer partners are going to be here at the front. They can come now. And there's going to be people at these steps here. Maybe you need to pray with someone. They're here to do that. Maybe you need to get alone by yourself at the stairs on the sides. You go there. If, if, if God's working with you in any way, and you just feel that there's a moving going on in your heart, just be obedient to what he's doing. Father, I thank you for what your potential is to do in these moments. Move on the hearts of your people. Move on the hearts of those who are not yet your people, who desire to be your child. Help them to walk from their shame to this new life that they can find in you. We thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you, would you sing with us this morning?